Kia ora, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson and my guest today is Dame Anne Salmon. Dame Anne is a distinguished professor of anthropology and Maori studies at the University of Auckland and author and the first social scientist to be awarded the Rutherford Medal, New Zealand's top scientific prize. In 2013, she was Kiwi Bank New Zealand of the Year and last year was awarded the Blake Medal. Kia ora, Dame Anne. Kia ora. Uh, last week, or, or the other week, uh, Pure Advantage launched uh, the new program, Otato Nahere, which is, is, and part of that, you wrote a brilliant foreword um, about restoring biodiversity and, and native forests. And in that, you talk about the, the web of life or how life forms are all connected, um, in, in particular how that was kind of explained from early natural historians, early Europeans, such as Charles Darwin, Alexander von Humboldt, and the close resemblance that had to, to Maori thinking and, and ideas through complex networks and whakapapa, and how that contrasts with a lot of the Western ideas of ranking everything in a cosmic hierarchy, which I think is a fantastic way to, to describe it, you know, from God, man, woman, animals, plants, down to the earth. How do you see some of those indigenous ideas and, and some of that, um, that natural history science that, that came about in, in that discovery phase with the modern ideas and modern technology and modern thinking and how do you think they complement each other and how do you think we can work together to try and really um, start to solve some of these complex issues? Well, it's a really fascinating topic because, you know, we've tended to think that uh, in modernity in the West, you know, we don't have superstition, we don't have mythology, that's what other people have. Um, you know, so our premises when we think about how the world works are kind of based on pure reason and uh, whereas for example when you're looking at at wānanga and mātauranga which are Māori ways of thinking the story of creation is regarded as a kind of you know mythic superstitious um, uh, account of how the world comes to be which doesn't have any kind of validity if you're exploring it scientifically but the thing that's very curious about that is that um, Whakapapa, which is the basic paradigm, if you like, or the, the form of order in uh, Te Māori, is one where when you go back to the old cosmological chants, and if you translate them accurately, which is not to say that you turn them into a, many translations of Māori texts, um, they're thoughtless in the way that they use European matching phrases. And so these cosmological chants will often be replicated or translated in religious language, you're talking about gods and, and that kind of thing. Whereas if you read them in the original Māori and you try and understand that as best one can um, at the distance from you know, a couple of hundred years ago when people saw the world and understood the world really differently, it starts with a surge of energy, actually, the, the account um, in many of these, these chants. And then it goes to knowledge, uh, thought, thought, memory, and desire emerge after this great surge of energy, curiously enough, and then knowledge itself. And then the winds of life and growth blow through the cosmos. And then you get these kind of eons of nothingness, um, which is actually, when I've heard the cosmographers, the um, physical cos uh, cosmologists, astronomers, and people like that in our contemporary science, they talk about nothingness as a concept, actually. Um, but, and there they, there's that concept in some of these early um, Māori cosmo cosmological accounts. And it's only after that that you start seeing 
phenomenal reality kind of emerge, if you like. And as we all know, with the earth and the sky and, and then the, the forces of, um, of, the, of the sea and the, and the forests and the, and the life forms like the fish and the birds and uh, the winds and so on. And in that kind of way of thinking, the whole cosmos is a kind of very complex interacting uh, network. It's sort of phrased in a, a language of kinship or co connectivity, actually. It's not really kinship. It's, these whakapapa are not biological in a strict sense. They're about relationships uh, based on complementarity and exchange. And surprisingly, <laughs> that's actually pretty close to the way a lot of the contemporary biological sciences are going, with a very strong emphasis on complementarity, on exchange, symbiosis, you know, complex communities, um, uh, complex networks and systems. And life is this kind of, as von Humboldt, some of those very early Western scientists uh, like Darwin and von Humboldt would argue a web of life. And so what's interesting me about, about a lot of this is that I see translations quite often treacherous. You know, you, if you decide that Māori accounts of the, of the world and how it emerged are mythic, then you lose the, use the English language of religion to translate them. And then everybody thinks that this is a story about religion. And actually, I don't think it is. So, um, so complexity theory and some of the smartest scientists in our country are actually experimenting actively with ideas about complexity, about relational um, logic, which is different from sort of Boolean logic, which is either or and or binary logic like we have in computers, for example, um, a logic in which the relationship is prior rather than having A is not equal to B as the sort of prior equation. It might be, you know, A is related to B and the relationship in the middle is the key thing. Um, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, very deep logical difference between these two forms of order. Uh, so there's a Māori form of order and that's whakapapa. And then I think there's a diversity of thought in the West as well. Um, and we have these early naturalists, uh, very great scientists that thought in ways which are very easy, very easy to translate to Māori actually. And when, when we look back now over the last 250 odd years since Europeans had come to New Zealand with significant land use change from then, how do you think some of that initial knowledge and, and how New Zealand's now changed and now we're going into this phase of restoration and, and trying to bring nature back? What, what, where does that historical knowledge fit into this new restoration story? Well, as I sort of pointed out briefly in, in that um, preface uh, or foreword to the uh, Otato Ngahere site, there are these other ideas in, in modernity and they become they became very dominant in fact uh, more much more dominant than the, the idea of the web of life and the idea of the great chain of being which i talk about briefly there it's a really old form of order in in um, the western kind of historical trajectory it goes right back to the greeks actually but um in medieval times you know as you say god at the top of this great chain of being and then you go down through the archangels and the angels, and then you have a divine monarch. And this is the, or, or, the origin of sovereignty, actually, 
This is where the idea of sovereignty comes from, a God-given right, you know, sort of supreme power. And then you go down through the ranks of the aristocracy and the commoners, and as you say, men over women and children. Um, and then you finally get to the, the barbarians, which would be Māori because they're agricultural, and the savages, which would be the hunters and gatherers. And then you go down to the sentient animals like the apes, non-sentient animals. Then you're sort of getting down to insects and you've got plants and you know rocks right at the bottom. And the difference between that and Māori cosmology is that in the great chain of being, everything at the bottom of the chain is supposed to offer up homage and tribute to everything at the top of the chain. So you can see it's a, it's a kind of perfect habit of mind if you're, you know, this is where racism comes from. A lot of racist thinking is, you know, there are higher and lower forms of, of cultural development, for example, higher and lower races. Um, you get sexism because it's men over women. In the old days in Europe, women were legal, they call it the doctrine of coverture. Women were legally covered by their husbands and fathers. And that's why they didn't have an independent legal identity. And that's why they didn't own property and they couldn't vote, for example. So that comes sort of out of the great chain of the idea of the glass ceiling. You know, as people know your place in the great chain. And when you're talking about things like how we use the land, um, Papa Tuanuku, if you like, you know, the earth itself is right at the bottom. So when you hear people talking about ecosystem services and uh, resource management, I mean, it's this idea that the earth's just there to serve humans. And given their, and this, the Genesis story, you know, God created heaven and earth and gave Adam and Eve dominion over all the plants and the animals and so on. So it sort of comes out of very, very old ideas. And people don't even realize that a lot of what we, you know, trickle down economics, for example, which is seen to be sort of supremely logical, is actually based on a really, really ancient um, kind of myth, <laughs> myth type, if you like, a sort of, it's a, it's a mythic conception of how, because there's no scientific support for it at all. Well, and because we've been working the the soil and the ocean so hard over the last, especially the last, you know, hundred probably, you know, especially post-war, we've really ramped things up. Um, yeah. The, the the there is a shift now in realizing we have to restore that balance. Like I like to think of sustainability as as balance. When things are in balance, everything's kind of all working and functioning, and and that's the direction we're starting to have some of these conversations in but when we talk about say uh if we just use climate change for an example now if we're talking about climate change at the moment it's largely um exotic forestry in new zealand mm. which does some it has some role but what we're really starting to understand is for full function of biodiversity fresh water etc we need to go towards native forest systems. What, what are some of the, because when I think of obviously Pinus radiata, it's a fast growing tree. So we've got mm. tw 20 years and then we can harvest it. And that kind of fits within this economic model of, of landowners and, and others. How do we move towards something that might be a bit slower growing or, um, or, or provide other services that don't have that same kind of initial incentive that we've, kind of growing up and understood for the, for the last 50 odd years or so. Okay, so what I'm really arguing, I think, in that preface and elsewhere too, is, is that in a way, um, 
the way we sort of understand the way the world works is it's foundational. It's sort of, there's an underlying logic to that, which we don't question and we don't even know we're using it really. Um, and just, just quickly before we go into plantation forests, this other great ruling idea I talked about in the preface was the idea of, um, you know, sort of the split, uh, the Cartesian dualism, basically, which it sort of takes an eye of God view. So it links up with the great chain of being, the eye of God view of the, the whole of reality, and then sort of starts dividing things. So you, you end up with, for example, nature versus culture, people versus the environment, subject versus object. It's that binary logic, the sort of Boolean logic, if you like, where you're, you're constantly going through and saying X is not equal to Y. And then you, you apply mathematics to that. So you start measuring it. And when you start measuring it, then you can start commodifying it. So one of the forms that we see applied to the land in the time of the endeavor, for example, you know, when the first Europeans arrived, surveying and, and um, cartography with the great grid of latitude and longitude laid across the globe, and then the surveyors come and you see them gridding the land. So all these settlements from the early New Zealand company maps are all laid out in grids. And you're measuring, you know, you're dividing the land up, putting boundaries uh, around it, quantifying it, and then selling it on a market. Totally different from Māori forms of land use, which was much more relational again. And, and the same thing with a lot of the way we, you know, the fences in our landscapes. If you look at, um, at New Zealand from the air, uh, from a drone, say, you know, you see grids everywhere, including in plantation forests. They just kind of, you lay it out on the landscape, irrespective of what's there. You plant all the trees out in grids. They're all the same. This is like Cartesian logic, absolutely, you know, par excellence. And, um, and this idea that it's all there to serve human purposes. And the problem with it is, is, is actually, it seems to be that this is actually not the way the world works. You know, ecosystems, um, we're, we're now in the, in the scientific community exploring complexity far more, realizing that things like climate change and biodiversity losses and what's happening to the ocean and soil loss, they're all totally interconnected phenomena. And the way in which humans relate to these living systems is part of what's driving a lot of these wicked problems that we're facing because we've just kind of applied this logic to landscapes, we've kind of abstracted them in a way so that you put forests in place of plantation forests all over the East Coast, some of the most erodible land in the world. Then you chop them down every 25 years and leave the land completely exposed. You get a big rain event, like in Tolaga Bay not so long ago. All the soil comes down, all the slash comes down, all the rivers get choked. You build dams and valleys uh, with, with the slash all piling up. Next thing that bursts and it it's out over all the paddocks. People's houses are getting buried in logs. The beaches have been covered in logs. The ocean's full of logs. I mean, it's, it's a kind of insane form of land use, really. You know, it looks like it's rational, but actually it's working against the way that these ecosystems and these landscapes work. And so that's why I'm saying there has to be this kind of fundamental shift in how we think. And we have that legacy from... Humboldt and Darwin and many others, the web of life idea, which has been shoved to the edges of a lot of our thinking. Um, you know, we, because when we apply the grid, we applied it to people too with censuses and, uh, um, you know, just, just the way in which we organize. If you look at our spreadsheets, they're all in grids. You look at 
our outlook calendars, we've done the same thing with time. I mean, this is a cultural artifact is what I'm saying. It's not the way the world is. And it's not actually working. That's the problem. The, we've commodified everything, including other people. And, and we've kind of abstracted them in a, in a curious kind of way that means we, we you know, the, the concern for how all these kind of systems work for the benefit of the vast majority of people, as in trickle-down economics, um, you know, with this, these great huge gaps between the people that control things at the top of the great chain of being, the 1%, if you like, and the 99%. You know, all of that's come to a point where it's really intolerable, and the natural systems are breaking down. As, so, as we, um, yeah. As we start to relearn what we need to do correctly on the land, yeah, that's, and this is the challenge, right? We have landowners who uh, have to make a living how do yeah. we and we are seeing you know some then this is one of these big challenges on the east coast where we've got yeah. sheep and beef farmers converting land just to exotic forestry because it's paying better um and then that's you know creating fewer jobs in those communities but again that's a and then when when those trees are harvested we we continue to have some of those challenges because some of this land is pretty marginal land I know you, you've spent a lot of time in that part of New Zealand. What are the conversations and what, what are some of the, the positive stories or what are some of the, the, the exciting outcomes that you're starting to see from that? Yeah, well, the thing that's going on there too, you know, things like the ETS are another exactly the same form of logic. You know, the, you look at their grids and the lookup tables, for example. And, um, you know, on the East Coast, you get paid 10 times more by year five for planting your land in pine trees, which are, you know, harvested after 27 years, that 10 times more than for regenerating or restoring native forest. And this is just crazy because native forest in those same landscapes, these are not impoverished landscapes. They've just been used really badly. You know, they've been used for monocrops of one kind or another without actually thinking about how that landscape works. And they, it's perfectly possible, I'm sure. And we're talking a lot with farmers, you know, we've got a big catchment restoration project happening right now in Gisborne. All the farmers are on board. And, you know, you can use those landscapes if you respect the way they work. So you could put native forest in the eroding gullies and on the really steep slopes. You can have riparian plantings that shade the, the waterways in the way they used to and which are diverse ecologically. So, that by, you know, you're tackling biodiversity at the same time, but you're also cleansing the water. And with the streams, you know, the roots of these, a native forest has got a very, very complicated underground root structure because a lot of those species, they, their roots interconnect. You know, you will have heard some of the stuff happening around uh, the people that are talking about fungal communities underground as well. And um, that's not like a monoculture. It's really, really different kind of root architecture of different underground um, complex communities of bacteria and fungi and roots. And, and um, so you can, if we learn to work with the land, you know, we, we figure out how it works and we use the biota that was here has been co-evolving with these landscapes for 80 million years. You know, we only, humans only turned up probably around about sort of, if you're thinking chronological time, maybe about 1300. So we've only been here, you know, sort of a case of here we turn up and then next minute, you know, we've kind of, 
we're, we're burning everything down and we're kind of, you know, planting it all out either in pasture or, or in pine trees. And we're not actually haven't really looked to see what we could do with what was already here. Uh, so there's almost no science on native forests when it comes to things like, you know, the most, some of the most beautiful timbers in the world. Um, you know, the complex communities of birds and animals and lizards and so on in those, in those forests. Um, a lot of the plants, we haven't, the science has been millions and millions and millions of research money poured into propagating pine trees and almost nothing into how native forests work. It's, it's kind of, because somehow or other we saw that as nature and wild, you know, and so we just either lock it up in, in national parks or we kind of, we destroy it, we spray it, burn it, whatever. It's and a, it's that it's, nature clock of split, you know, it's, it's kind of, again, it's a bit demented. That sort of archivist idea where you lock it up and, and leave it alone. Yeah. And again, that's not, that's not Māori philosophy. I mean, when you're thinking about whakapapa, people are part of the ecosystem. And they are, you know, that's what we're finding in our work up the river is, you know, the plants, the animals, uh, the water itself, the land and the people, they're all part of it. And if you, you need to be able to get it all working together so that everything is thriving, including the people. That's the trick. Um, but you can't do that without actually knowing how those people work a bit and then also how the plants and the animals work and how the river works and what kind of geology you've got. And so the scientific paradigms that we're operating with are also, you know, they're all gridded as well. So you try and understand a river and you've got to get you know, you need a hydrologist, you need a freshwater, you know, biologist, you need a microbiologist, you need a geomorphologist, you need, you know, forest ecologist, you need social. I mean, honestly, it's, it's all, and most of them don't really know what the others know. Well, I think this is the, the, big, the bigger challenge around siloed departments and universities, isn't it? That, you know, how do we create this much more interdisciplinary thinking with all of these issues and get people talking together, you know, across different departments and, and really looking yeah. at the whole ecosystem as one. So that's the same, it's the same problem, actually, you know, it's, it's the same thing about, you know, if you use the grid as your kind of model, and you do in universities as well, the great chain of being talk about our grading systems. Uh, you know, you, when you realize these are cultural artifacts, rather than the only way that you could evaluate, you know, human competencies, um, does make you wonder a bit. And so I think Whakapapa is actually, well, the good thing about Aotearoa, we, we're really lucky because we've got, we've got a strong scientific legacy, but some of that actually does come out of these other, you know, the other the web of life type of thinking that came from, it was quite strong in the Scottish Enlightenment as well as in places like Germany. And a lot of that came out with, with early European settlers. Um, but equally, we've got, you know, we've got the indigenous kind of uh, ways of understanding and being in the landscape right there. And so what's happening now is we're starting to experiment with how you can bring those together creatively, rather than saying one's on top of the other and one's myth and the other one's, you know, that scientific knowledge and it's, it's got all the answers. It's saying, well, actually, the scientific paradigm's got some problems. It is too, it's too fragmented. It's too... Uh, yeah, as you say, silo thinking, and, and our, same thing with our government departments. Um, if we could start doing complexity with that, with the way we organise science as well, and it's not actually, 
And that's the pro what we're doing in our project, actually. So in our project, we've got Susie Wiles, for example, just made New Zealand of the Year last night. Um, she's in part of our project team on the river because we want to understand there's a lot of bugs in the river because they've been discharging sewage with the wastewater when it rains a bit hard. And so lots of people have been getting sick. A lot of the wakama paddlers have got all these horrible rashes and sores on their arms and legs, and it's coming from the water. So Susie's going to come and join us in this project and do water sampling with the wakama paddlers and bring in the mobile DNA lab and try and figure out what the bugs are that are making people ill. And these are world-class sports people. Um, got Dan Hikudor, and Dan is the um, with me. He, he and I are leading the project together, and he's a leading thinker about bringing together Mateuranga with cutting-edge science. He's a geologist. He calls himself an earth systems scientist. Yeah, I've, I've and, had many conversations with Dan. It's, it's always brilliant to hear um, the way yeah. he talks about the the codified of stories that you know in in Mataranga and in you know Western science, they are very much the same. It's just that the way they're told and understood is totally different. A lot of that is a problem in translation too, you know, because when one of the things that Dan and I've been doing, and I've been doing this with friends of mine, uh, other scholars who are very deeply immersed in Te Reo and going back into Te Reo to try and understand, you know, Whakapapa is not biology, it's not the same thing as genealogy. It's not a biological model. It's a relational logic. And, um, and so we've been sort of delving into Te Reo to try and understand before it was influenced by Western thinking, you know, how did that actual habit of that system of thought work? And yeah, Dan's, Dan's doing some brilliant stuff around that. And we've got quite a few um, collaborators and researchers in our team who are Māori that are working on these same interfaces. But also Gary Briley is one of the best river scientists in the world, you know, so he's a, he's a, and he loves this stuff. Um, and Billy Lithberg, who's worked a lot with um, Māori communities and businesses from the business school, because we want to sort of get those guys in, involved as well. So it's, you know, we're just trying to bust the box the boxes and, um, you know, do the weaving bring back things that have been separated, bring it back together again. Which which makes um, absolute sense. I want to touch on that part where, as, as a landowner, and you talked about putting in those natives again, if, yeah. if for a landowner, that, that change or that transition now, is that go, do you think that that's going to look in the form of a biodiversity credit or that, that restoring natives will have a different type of carbon credit when you have, you know, this range of different species rather than, you know, monoculture, what what do you think that's going to look like, or, or what do you think um, the landowners can do so that they're incentivized to go with this approach? Well, you possibly know that um, uh, Jeremy and I, uh, I'm from Tūranga, from Gisborne, and um, and we. 20 years ago, we bought some land, 120 hectares up the Waimata uh, Valley. It was a place we used to go as kids to swim when it was too hot to go to the beach. And it had the surviving strip of alluvial bush, which is very rare uh, because it, you know, alluvial soils got cleared really early uh, because they're rich for farming. And uh, so we've been doing restoration work there for 20 years and trying to understand how to do it. And what you realize when you start doing it is that um, a lot of the stuff that's 
the policies that are generated down in Wellington are a long way away from the realities on the ground. And if you're a landowner, which I suppose we are, I mean, we look after the land, we don't really think of ourselves so much as owners, but the people that are for our lifetime, you know, there to look after this, this bit of it for, uh, for a period. Um, you need an income actually, because one of the things you, you learn when you're restoring native forest is that there's this constant onslaught of mammalian predators, you know, there's wild cats, there's possums, there's, uh, there's deer, there's goats, there's stoats, there's weasels, there's hedgehogs, there's, you know, you just name it, the rats, the, uh, the mice, and they're just pouring into those forests and they're just eating things. So they eat the, um, you know, the goats and deer were just, as you see in the Okumata Ranges, and this is where Graham Atkins, who's part of our organization as well, and part of our research program, heartbreaking, huge area, 100,000 hectares of forest, which is being eaten to death, basically. It's like dead. The Tōtara trees are still standing, but they've been chewed to death. And, um, and that's what we were seeing in our riverside forest. It was the same thing as what's happening in the Rokumaras. It wasn't fenced. And the goats, you know, the goats, the uh, people graze their stock on the roads because it's a gravel road and up that valley. And, and so in order for you to actually have the money to be able to do that, you've got a fence and then you have to trap and you've got to do that forever pretty much until we actually get pest-free New Zealand or whatever. And there's also the weeds that come in. You know, people take their garden rubbish and come out from town and just dump it um, into the bush, for example. And then you get all this Tratoscantia and all sorts of garbage that's sort of competing with the, the native plants. And so you have to have an income. So one of the things I've been arguing for, and I argued for it at the launch, um, was to have a one category in the ETS, the Emissions Trading Scheme, permanent forest. Forget about carbon forests of pine trees. It's a really bad idea. They're short-lived, they're shallow rooting. When they get old, they fall over. Uh, they're, they're dangerous to get in there and try and restore them. You know, why would you actually fund carbon forests, which are no jobs, you know, there's just like they're a, they're a, a nightmare waiting to happen. Uh, when you can, for, um, you can give an income to people that are developing permanent native forests. And some of those can be selectively harvested like they do in Europe. So you, you harvest in small coops. These are multi-species, multi-age forests, native species, indigenous to that particular region. Uh, the foresters are people that are trained in ecology um, and hydrology, so they look after the waterways as well. No sprays, uh, relying on natural regeneration, but it's very, very clever sort of forestry. It's harvesting in small coops, so that you've always got a job. You don't have a whole lot of work when people are planting and then you, everybody has to sort of head for the hills for 27 years and then come back and chop all the trees down. So this, you know, so, so this is a sort of um, multi-aged process so that, that we're, we're harvesting high quality New Zealand hardwoods that have been growing yeah. over different timelines so there's always constant work and small patches in the forests this is this new kind of approach and new thinking that's only starting to come about is it yeah well and the, the ETS we've got this chance right now because these forests will keep sequestering carbon you know for a very very long time um, those trees and, and there's a lot of evidence around the world that natural forests sequester carbon in really different ways from plantation forests 
And with climate change, what's happening in Europe is all the conifer forests, plantations, I mean, they're going up in flames in many parts of Europe, and they're also getting attacked by bark beetles. So they're dying. Um, and 20 years ago, people in Germany and Switzerland and many of the Nordic countries, they realized that this was really stupid. So they started doing this close to nature forestry. And, you know, we should do it now. We should actually say, yes, this is stupid. Okay, we're not going to be able to make a transition overnight. You know, there's a big investment and a lot of these plantations are there already. But let's invest in doing something that's smart instead of something that's fundamentally stupid. What are the sort of and, time? Uh, what are the sort of yeah. timelines that we would be looking at for some of these um, these forests? Obviously, they're much slower growing, but the the carbon capture potential and biodiversity benefits are huge. Yeah, well, people say they're much faster, uh, slower growing, but it depends where you are. Again, you know, the look look up tables for pine. They've got different values for different ages of forest in different parts of the country, because pine grows really fast on the east coast, for example. But so do natives. So our place, we've got trees that we planted, you know, 18 years ago that are massive now. Really, really, they grow really fast in our in our environment. And up north with the tortara, there's all these natural tortara groves, and it just they, you know, tortara is beautiful wood. And uh, they just kind of crop up. It's almost like Monica. They come up spontaneously. And so they're starting to manage those. And that's covered in the websites, some of the projects that are happening there. Um, we've got these gorgeous chairs at our place. And we show them to people. They're like shaker chairs, really. And we say, what do you think these are made of? And they don't know. And it's, they're made of Monica from our place. It's a gorgeous. Everyone calls it scrub. You know, we, we haven't figured out to what we could do with the things that we have at our fingertips and and we just burn it and spray it and yeah manik is an interesting one because obviously with the value of, of honey um but i've heard yes. I, and I, i'm not sure if this is entirely true or not but i've heard that because it's so concentrated on bees and honey it actually means that the bees are stripping the food from all of the other animals so you actually don't have biodiversity benefits when you are actively trying to uh, produce manuka honey. Do you know much about that or is that, is that true? Or? Um, I don't know about that, but I, I think that monocultures, generally speaking, are probably not a very clever idea. Ecologically, um, you know, monocultures are susceptible to, you know, big disease problems. Um, the fungal communities underground are really different in a, mon in a monoculture than they are in a natural forest. And the close to nature stuff is clever because what it's doing, this is what the principle I, I hope we shift to, how do we work with what we've got? You know, instead of coming in and saying, oh, it doesn't look like England, let's knock down all these weird and wonderful trees, you know, they're, they're a bit scary, the bush is like scary, so let's burn it all. You know, we built most of, many of our houses are built out of those timbers, they're beautiful timbers. They. Yeah, my, my old flat in Palmerston North, I think. <laughs> you know, 1950s house with some beautiful old hardwood. Yeah, Matai, you know, uh, Cody's a beautiful tree. But actually, in our place, we've, my husband's an architect. We've got Tawa ply. So Tawa's not a hardwood, but makes beautiful plywood. And we've got Nibarewa ply. Um, we've got Matai beams. We've got uh, beach uh, sarking. And if we produce this stuff commercially, you know, at the moment it's, it's, you can only use it for, 
you know, in small quantities because it's too expensive otherwise. But but these are beautiful timbers, and but there are medicinal uses in these plants. There's a whole bunch of things. You know, it's great for tourism. Um, these are better jobs, you know. People, you put people into a monoculture on the east coast, Pinus radiata. Man, you know, it's Papa Rock Hills. They're slippery. Um, you go up into our place in the rain, you've got to be really careful uh, because this, the hills are steep and the papa just turns into a... So no wonder so many people are getting killed up there in the forests. And so I, th I think, you know, there's a huge opportunity. It's really exciting. Um, I'm going to try and get the Royal Society to actually run one of their expert advice panels on native afforestation because we've done no research. We need to get cracking. And... I think these would be wonderful jobs. You know, people would love doing that kind of forestry, I think. And it means there's jobs, but there's also the joy of being in the bush and, you know, we're not kind of raping the place. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, and it's, it's amazing that it's taken this long for us to start to bring so many of these ideas together what, what is the, I mean, how, how many people are trying to start doing this now? You know, how, how, how developed are some of these ideas on some, of, on some of these properties? Yeah, well, the commercial use of native timbers, you know, because we had this kind of this radical split between culture and nature, and in New Zealand, we've just done that. You know, the, a lot of the environmentalists are really, really uh, don't like the idea of harvesting native forests because they think, well, if you do that, then everybody will want to go and do that in the conservation estate and knock everything over. And I'm saying, well, would you really rather have, you know, monocultures of pine trees? Because that's your option. That's what's going on. And so that's we've, that's been a, a problem of the mind again, you know, that what you do with data forest is lock it up. And actually, then you don't look after it either because you can't afford to, which is what's happening in the Rokumata Ranges. And then the forests just die, you know. So if you're not actually, so many of our forests, I think we need to, put people back in them and learn how they work again, you know, and then figure out how we can make a really good living with them. And I think that that would be, because otherwise we haven't really got a future. You know, you destroy our rivers and our waterways, you're filling them up with toxins, you're filling them up with mud, the harbors, um, you know, then because of deforestation, you've got all these problems with climate change and fossil fuels and stuff. And then you've got the biodiversity crashes that are happening, ecosystems just collapsing all over the planet. I mean, wake up, you know, people need to wake up and realize that, that we're putting our own kids' lives at risk. As, it's, COVID. As, it's a long, it's a slow COVID. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's um, one of these interesting things that COVID's reminded us is we are not able to you know, have that cosmic hierarchy, you know, nature always will still find a way back in and look at what it's done yeah. over the last year and a half. And it's, you know, yeah. continuing to still um, cause, you know, so many issues. With that biodiversity, I, I, I want to kind of just quickly ask you as well, as we start to restore a lot of these native bush, we're going to create environments for more of these mammalian pests as well, which is this constant onslaught yeah. too. You know, we're we, we haven't been able to have a mature conversation about genetic technologies 
do you mm. think that that's going to be a critical part or, or what, what what why do you think it's taken us so long to start even having a conversation about genetic technologies instead of sticking to this kind of uh, you, you know clean New Zealand brand that we've tried to hold on to well I think there's plenty of genetic engineering going on with pine trees for one thing so it's uh you know it's just that um I think about that as it's a bit like COVID again, you know, if you have somebody that just goes ahead and does stuff that happens to, you know, I'm making a buck on my piece of land, so I don't give a damn what, what happens to the neighbor downstream. So somebody's sheep dies. So they just, instead of burying it, they stick it in the river. Mm. That happens all the time. Um, or they, you know, a horse dies and they chop it up with a chainsaw and chuck it in the river for, and then, you know, the, Bakama paddlers and the kids downstream suddenly find all these animal limbs floating past them. And then they wonder why people are getting sick. It's a bit like, you know, when people went out and said, I'm not going to wear masks and I actually want to drink, so I'm going to break out of MIQ. Um, and then a whole bunch of other people get sick. That's actually what we're doing in the environment, I think. You know, you've got people saying, this is my piece of land. I'll do what I like with it. The hell with you. And the forestry companies are doing that. You know, they're saying, well, I don't, you know. Okay, so last time it rained in Gizzi in, in any big way, all these logs went down the river, wrapped themselves around the piers of the Gladstone Road Bridge, which also happens to have the power and the, and the water for the town and slug underneath it. And, it, you know, it destabilized the bridge. If it had been much more rain, it probably would have knocked it over. And they say, oh, you know, nothing to do with us. Act of God. Um, so I think COVID might have taught us a really useful lesson that selfish people are actually dangerous, you know, and that's, that applies to land use as well. If people use their land in ways which create all sorts of issues for, you know, like putting toxins, you used to put sheep dip in the river, <laughs> and, you know, all the stuff that goes into the river just because the council is not investing enough in sorting out the sewage, you know, it's that ends up in the river and all these people are getting sick. So I think COVID might have taught us that actually this idea that we're all, it's again the little gridded model, I'm my own little box and what I do in my own little box on my own little bit of land is my, you know, my private property, I can do what I like and to hell with the rest of you. It doesn't work. Do, yeah, <laughs> there's so many, uh, it seems as, as the world becomes more globalized and there's just this increased advance, you know, there's just more and more of these inputs coming in as well and, and trying to learn a totally or rethink a totally new way of, of managing all of these resources is, is going to be really critical over the next 10, 20 years. What, I mean, in, in your, in your sort of, career what are the things that give you hope about what's coming next what are the things that make you optimistic about the next things um i really i'm hope i am actually quite hopeful because you know when you think about it we've locked new zealand down for a year now pretty much from the outside world and we've kind of done okay you know it's it's amazing we've sort of managed um to run our own affairs in a way which you know, we've talked about kindness and aroha and all that sort of thing and think about other people and don't just go out there and, you know, cough all over everybody in the supermarket and wear masks on the, on the plane. Um, we've managed to sort of adopt a much more collectivist, much more fuck up type of approach 
to how we run ourselves. I think, you know, if we'd had a more neoliberal approach, we would have been in the same boat as, as say, you know, France at the moment or, or Britain initially. Um, we're just, you know, catastrophic death rates and hospitals just choking and people dying in the corridors. So I'm, I'm really optimistic. I think that we might have learned something as a society uh, from all of this, but equally, um, I think we've got these other trajectories that we can draw on from the Pacific and from Māori thinking, and also the top, you know, cutting edge science is heading in the same direction. So if we're really smart and we get in there and experiment like crazy, which is what I'm hoping that we'll do, and a lot of young people that are really brilliant, uh, you know, all my collaborators, they're just mostly they're pretty much, much younger and, and they just, you know, they're great, you know, they're terrific people, they really care, and they're very smart. And they're often cosmopolitan, they've lived in other countries, and they just sort of see opportunities here because we're small and um, intimate, so we can actually run a kind of network society if we want to. And, and we can innovate, you know, try stuff. So yeah. I actually feel pretty excited, yeah. I think it's, I mean, I think that's a fantastic way to to, to end the, the podcast, you've presented some amazing new ideas and, and, you know, it really makes for an exciting future, I think, to imagine a, a Aotearoa with these fantastic, you know, native forests with, with, you know, totally different ways of thinking how we use the land. So I think that's really exciting and, and I really appreciate, uh, appreciate you sharing that. Is there anything, you, any final comment or anything you want to finish on, Damien? Um, no, the only thing I'd say is that, like, for example, in our Rivers project, um, you know, all the farmers hopped on board. And the reason was that we, we tried to find a way, and this is where the ETS, the government's got to think like this as well. What do they need in order to use their land a bit better? And, you know, wool prices just absolutely crashed. And so a lot of them are in quite a lot of financial trouble. And these are people that I know really well and they've got young families. And, and so we managed to raise the money to give them um, to do farm environment plans, which they have to do now, and to fence and to plant and to get pest and weed control onto their places. And, and that's uh, not been that hard, you know, and they're all, they're all on board. And the other thing that, that's really interesting up our valley is that since the school shut, they haven't been able to get together now they're getting together around this project. You know, it's, it's something where you can work together and, you know, everybody cooks and they bring some food and, you know, we all end up in our gummies in the river. It's, it's fun. And um, so I think, you know, that's the other side of this, that we can make it really fun and enjoy each other's company and, you know, break the generations up as well, mix them up and just see what we can, what we can do. That, that sense of community and, and connection after being in lockdown, I think, has you know, really reminded people or, or in fact, um, just showing people how, how much we really do value that ability to connect, which was something that we didn't really, we, we definitely took it for granted. Uh, so, yeah, so I think, you know, connection is absolutely, I think, the theme of, of what we spoke about and, and a brilliant way to end. So, so again, yeah, thank you so much, Damien. It's been uh, brilliant talking to you. Yeah, lovely to meet you too. Okay, hope to meet you in person. Yes, yeah, me too. I hope to meet you soon. Thanks, everyone. Okay.